0: To the Getting Smart podcast, I'm Rebecca Middles. Today, I'm joined by former guest on the Getting Smart podcast and a friend of Getting Smart as well as mine, Stephanie Malia Kraus. Stephanie is the author of multiple books, including Making It and The New Whole Child Whole Life: Ten Ways to Help Kids Live, Learn, and Thrive. Thank you so much for being here.
1: I could not be more excited to be here. And Getting Smart was my first podcast for my first book. And it was also in the middle of a pandemic. And so here we are a couple of years later and I'm still in my basement, but life feels a little bit um, safer and brighter and more hopeful. And I'm really glad to be with you.
0: I'm so glad. And I'm going to encourage people listening. If they haven't had a chance to hear that one, I got to go back and re-listen to it before this one today and it's worth it. So please do make that connection. The other podcast we have with her is about making it also a wonderful book. So wonderful to have another one from you. And I appreciate the personal shares that you open with and the connections that you make throughout, um, particularly resonating for me being a parent during the pandemic and where we are now. What brought you from making it to whole child, whole life? What was your journey?
1: Oh, well, so making it was about what young people need to be ready For the future, future of learning, future of work, ready for a world that is still unfair and unjust. And in so many ways, it was my love letter back to the front lines um, that I had left almost a decade before for national work because all of the questions I had when I was teaching and running a school about what beyond graduation requirements kids really needed to be ready for adulthood and real life and real work, I didn't get the answers until I left school. And then I was in these national conversations that often were missing folks from the front lines. So I wrote making it as this love leather back to say, hey, this is what we need to know. Young people actually need to be ready for adulthood." And the book came out, as I just mentioned, in the middle of the pandemic at its height. And so as I went around and I was doing this pandemic basement book tour, every single time I would talk to a group, it didn't matter if they were parents and families, counselors, teachers, career and technical educators, administrators. I would get the same version of this question, which was gratitude for knowing what kids would need to be ready for adulthood in the future. And then this like very emotional appeal to say, God, but I'm afraid that kids are going to give up or burn out before they get there. And folks knew that I had a social work background. And so the question was, what do our kids need to be well? And I felt that so deep in my bones because my boys are 10 and 12. And it was the question I was asking in the middle of the pandemic of, I was looking at the future and knowing what they needed to be ready, but I knew that in order for them to thrive, they needed to be ready and well. And so um, a friend of mine just called whole child, whole life, the like kind of cousin of making it because they really are companions for our kids to be okay in the world. They have to be ready to work it and they have to be healthy and whole in it. And so where making it is about doing, whole child, whole life is really about being. And what I wanted to do was pull back and say, anyone who spends time with kids, when kids are with them, those kids are in your care. And so it doesn't matter if you call those children, your students, your clients, your athletes, your participants, they are children and their need of care. And we have to be people who are really well-versed in the science and art and magic of how you care for kids. And so that's really the spirit of this book. The other thing I'll say really quickly, Rebecca, is that, and I'm curious if you picked up on this, my theme that I kept telling myself as I was working through this was be timely and timeless, be timely and timeless. I really wanted something that would address these pressing, dramatic spikes in child and youth mental health, the conversations around learning loss, the post-pandemic realities, while also offering that timeless quality of there are things, practices that have always been important um, that we have to fully embrace in order to support young people's well-being. And What was really cool when I was writing it is recognizing that what is good for kids is often good for us and that what they need for their well-being and what I talk about as their well-becoming, we Mm. also need for our own ability to be healthy and whole.
0: Absolutely. I think you and I have talked before about just that empowerment and solutionary kind of mindset that we want young people to have. And how some were encouraged during the pandemic especially with the identity work and black lives matter work that came out during that time that was in a really strong fold it had been before but it was really powerful and for students to really think about what that meant for them and some feeling more empowered to do something about it and some feeling less so by not having access to resources and i think that being timely and timeless piece i think you did hit the mark and so i appreciate that you called that out i also love that you opened this book with a very personal sharing about how you see yourself in the, in the way that we start to profile a learner and sharing those pieces and what society would say, I guess, it, it would define you and that you did this as the author. And then you went on to unpack that, which I felt was a really beautiful transition into that first part of your book that sets the stage for learner portraits and how we create them. Can you tell us a little bit more about your phrase, which I love, by the way, turning profiles into portraits? And uh, it's so simple, but it conveys such deep-rooted challenges in this work. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Absolutely. I'd love to. So Whole Child, Whole Life as a book is broken up into three different parts. Um, This first part is about creating whole child portraits that really see kids in context and go beyond what is needed for them in a single system or setting. The second are these 10 practices that we can um, use to support young people at every age and stage of life, and that hopefully they will internalize in the same way we talk about, about lifelong learning, we can think about lifelong thriving. These are practices that last the whole life. And then the third, final part of the book is. How do we know when it's working? What does it look like wholeness when it's happening? Um, So that we know, we know when kids are well. So, this first part really builds off of um, work that you and I have both been engaged in, which are these profiles of a graduate, often the back mapping of graduation requirements. And for me, I wanted to address. Both the strengths and limitations of profile work and also whole child work as they're currently situated in schools. So, oftentimes, profile work, as I just mentioned, really is just a backwards mapping from graduation requirements and whatever our working, evolving understanding is of what young people need to be ready for college and ready for careers. Um, and for those who haven't read Making It, That is the tour de force that is making it is the way in which those worlds are changing. The whole child approach in schools very often focuses only on the individual child, who they are academically and socially and emotionally, except that we know that kids aren't raised in schools and in classrooms, they're raised in context and community. Including the n- incredible number of hours that they spend in a school building or in an educational environment for those who homeschool or unschool. And so, what I wanted to do was imagine an actual developmentally comprehensive picture of what would happen if we went through the process of truly understanding the whole of who a young person is. And instead of just seeing a profile of a single child, we saw them in all of the high definition, color, and detail of who they are in their life and who they are in learning. And so I walk through the first part of the book is more informational and reflective. The second part is very actionable, very concrete strategies. So in this first part, I start with, as you mentioned, the ways in which we automatically, often inadvertently profile kids based on who they are, where they live and what they look like and how that can be so harmful, but also it has an outsized impact on who they are, how the world will experience them and how they will experience the world. And so what I do in that beginning, what you caught is that I I profile myself and what um, teachers and other folks in the town that I grew up in, what they would have known and what they would have assumed based on not only who I was, but who my family was and what my background is. And then ultimately that that is not the whole of who I am, right? That that tells you about how I live and how I look and how the world sees me, but it doesn't tell you what makes me come alive. And so for us, we have to start there though. We have to understand the way that systems like schools will help or hurt a young person and make the journey easier or more difficult based on these demographics and these social determinants. And then from there, keep building. And so the second section is one that we don't, we rarely talk about in schools, but it's about health and our brains and our bodies and the ways in which how kids are doing health-wise impacts the whole of who they are. And I, I tell a story about my, um, older son when he was in second grade and he got extremely depressed and extremely lethargic and he was struggling in school and long story short, you can read the story in the book you, you got to, but he was terribly iron deficient and it had caused him, um, to have a version of, uh, sleep apnea. It was like, um, what's it called? Restless leg syndrome for kids. And that's caused by incredible iron deficiency. And so what we thought was needing mental health treatment and academic intervention needed to start with medical treatment and medication to just get his iron taken care of. And he ended up getting his tonsils and adenoids out too. Like the kid was exhausted. He needed sleep. And so that chapter is about, are we cross-trained enough that we understand in our care for kids, the health aspects that could be really impacting their ability to live and learn. And then um, connected to that is developmentally. There is the age of a child and then there are the developmental stages of the child. And the pandemic has really caused that to shift. So young people are really kind of growing up fast and slow right now. So in the book I walk through, here are the sort of typical developmental milestones, but really my hope is in the same way, so connecting to health, that we might get growth charts when we take our kid to a pediatrician. What would it look like if teachers and counselors and um, coaches and caregivers could create kind of developmental growth charts and say, okay, here's where a young person is socially and emotionally Here's where they are developmentally. And here's what we can expect is normal and typical for them. Um, And here's where we might be concerned and need to push in supports and services. The last two pieces of that moving from profile. So individual kid, you know, you build out where they are developmentally, you build out where they are health wise, and now you situate them in context. So you put them on that easel and you populate all the details and say, who are the people and places that this kid is engaged with that they're being impacted by and that they are also impacting? Because we we are who we surround ourselves with. Um, and knowing the worlds that young people occupy is a part of knowing them. Um, the final picture of the portrait is where I say, this is where you get color and high definition. and it's. You can, you can know what a person looks like and where they come from. So determinants and demographics, you can know what's going on with them developmentally and health wise. You can know who the people are and the places are, but if you really know a kid, you know, the moment they walk into your room and something is off and you know, the moment they get in your car and something is great. And so this is, the strengths and struggles chapter that the final sort of coat of painting or layer of detail or high definition of the portrait is what makes you come alive and where are the private spaces where you most struggle.
0: You know, I thought about when I was reading that piece is I felt like that's really where, you know, we talk about portraits of a graduate or learner portraits. That's what the field will talk about, but it's almost where that's a personal portrait for yourself, like kind of like your benchmarks, your portrait of a graduate. Sure. Your portrait of a learner at certain benchmarks along the way, post-graduation, really understanding that strength and struggle piece. I love that you highlight so many opportunities. And I also, you, you also talk about um, things you learned as parenting that were medical and OCD. You have another story. I'll just plant a little seed for people listening. There's another one where you wonder if there's a, a disorder that a student or one of your children have developed, but you find out it's another medical reason. So another one pointing to that piece, which I hope you don't mind. I'm going to jump to kind of that, that brain and body piece of what you just touched on a little bit, but maybe a little bit more. The interest in science and learning has really, um, grown. We know this by what people bring to us at Getting Smart, but also what people are interested in when we're at conferences or interacting and networking. There's definitely an increased interest in the whole child approach. Um, you give many tips and strategies for that, including a very easy to remember BBB standard. Uh, cute story behind it. But what it means for like the brain, body, and belly and how that impacts a child's well being. Can you tell us just a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So the story that you hinted at really. Changed me in a powerful way. So, in the middle of the pandemic, um, my older son, who wrote the preface of this book, I was really committed. Man, I was committed to a book about kids starting with the voice of a young person, and who better than my own child, um, who was going to keep me honest? And it, you're right, it is a powerful piece that I really didn't even have to touch. Like these are his words. Um, But he woke up in the middle of the pandemic with life stopping O C D symptoms. And he was, you know, afraid of dying and and getting sick and contamination. Those were the first symptoms. But we were in the middle of a pandemic. And I was also afraid of dying. And I was also washing my hands a lot. But it progressed incredibly rapidly. And as you mentioned, what we we went for mental health treatment. We got very wise counsel to find a therapist who specialized in OCD and anxiety and tics because that is a very specific set of mental health challenges. And it was the therapist who asked us if he was sick. And I said, No, he's not sick. We're in lockdown. And he said, I know that this sounds really strange, but I want you to take him. And get him tested for strep throat, which I found totally strange. And he said, I just need you to trust me. And so I masked up the boys and I went and I took my older son and I got him swabbed and I was making fun of this therapist at the office. Like, thank you for doing this. This guy's a little weird, you know, but... I would hate myself if he was sick. I was so convinced, Rebecca, that he did not have strep throat that I left the office before even the rapid results were back. Um, And they called me while I was still driving home and they said, oh my God, you're not going to believe this. He's positive. He has strep throat. So as it turns out, there is a neurological reaction that can happen when kids have untreated strep. He had had a horrible case of strep about a year prior that I'm pretty convinced was not just kicked with the round of antibiotics that he got and had been lingering. Um, And so he needed a combination of really good antibiotic medical treatment and then mental health treatment, because it had kind of switched on the lights in his brain to these OCD patterns and behaviors. Um, And then the support of his teacher. So this took me down this whole kind of tour de force of really understanding the way that our health truly impacts uh, or kids' health. It's true for anybody of any age, but kids' health really impacts how they live and learn. And so the, um, the sort of Better Business Bureau equivalent, this brain, body, belly picture is an unpacking of the research of what we actually know happens when young people, um, with how they're doing neurologically. So I was unaware, even I have studied brain science for many years, and I didn't realize how much of our food energy goes to the brain and just how intensely connected the brain and body are. Often we'll separate it. We'll talk about brain science or we'll talk about mental health as though the brain is not in the body. And then we've got this vagus nerve that just travels between the brain and the belly and the sort of gut biome. And there's a lot that we are learning. The point of the chapter is to give grounding foundational information about things like what happens when a young person has inflammation, whether that's caused from sickness or trauma, which can cause chronic inflammation what happens when a young person is injured, what happens if there is an imbalance like iron or vitamin D, and that very often, particularly in the school context or in a youth program context, what we might see as a behavioral challenge or obstinance can actually be a medical issue. And it's very tricky and complex because Often, as parents, we may not want to disclose or we may not know. And so, what I tried to do in this chapter and really throughout the book is kind of like perforate the walls between all of the adults who care for a child collectively. Because if I'm a teacher and I'm with a child for five hours in a day, or I'm the after school teacher and I'm with the child before and after school, so I'm with the child five hours a day or three hours a day, um, or I'm the parent. We all might observe things and see things that um, are important to share, to figure out what's actually going on in the life of the kid. On the flip side of the strength piece, I do talk in that chapter about the importance of things like movement and sleep and the profound impact that that can have on a young person.
0: Hmm. You do. And you get great examples. And there's charts to come that we hope to highlight too that we'll link um so i was caught with the with your conversation around thriving and you're ta- you're mentioning it now i think this is a good lead-in to talk about that it's not something to necessarily be achieved or accomplished it's a state and it's a state of being that young people can move in and out of based on resources right like could you i think people need to i think that's helpful to hear would you mind sharing a little bit more about that
1: Absolutely. So I want to take you back to making it and why I wrote it and it's equivalent in its kind of cousin, whole child, whole life. So when I wrote making it, I wanted to have an honest conversation about what it really, what readiness really requires in a world that is unfair and unjust because we often design these graduation requirements or we have these visions of what college and career ready mean that don't reflect the reality that so many young people experience. So the equivalent was, I was asking this question of can you thrive in tough times? If life continues to be volatile and uncertain and questions of like true survival, um, are really a part of the lived experience of a child? Is it still possible to thrive? And what I had found was the research and the writing on thriving and flourishing other books very often talk about it as this like enlightened stage that you can reach, something to be accomplished, to climb toward, And what I knew looking at my kids and the other kids who I am in relationship with or work on behalf of is that they're hustling every day. There is a component of surviving that is ever present in their lives with the fear of school shootings, with violence, with the pandemic that they went through. And so I had this question while I was writing of like, can you survive and thrive at once? Is it something where you have to survive and then eventually you shift into thriving or can it, can it happen at once? And what I found was that surviving to thriving is like, instead of it being a transition where you go from one into the other, it's more like sticking with the health metaphor. Think about like an EKG that's going up and down and Young people go in and out of thriving moment to moment. Um, we, as the adults, can set up the conditions in which they thrive. And so a young person can go home, and home can be a hard place, and they cannot thrive there, or it's, it's unlikely. And yet they show up in Rebecca's classroom, and she's, she's got it. She's on it as a teacher. And she is able to set up conditions for where that hour or two hours, the conditions are there where that young person feels rooted and connected and healthy and full of joy and purpose and learning and growing. And they get that break to just fully be a kid for that time. Then, our job as schools or youth programs or communities um, or communities of adults around a kid is how do we? Expand the moments where a young person and extend them, right? Expand and extend the moments in which young people can thrive so that they are experiencing a day or a season or an entire environment that really is a space where they can flourish.
0: I have the benefit of seeing so many of these charts and tools that you reference. Um, so I know that once people get this book, they'll be able to see how many of these things are so accessible. I love that, and you said in, this, in the next part of the, of the book where it becomes more of an action-focused, at the end of each section, because there's a lot to take in. At the end of each section, there's a learn, reflect, and act piece that I think will be really helpful, and it'll really make reference of those tools that you just give us a little touch of now, but as you get into the book, it's so more meaningful. Um, So let's, let's shift to kind of that future forecasting work. So raising future centenarians, did I say that right? I I think think so. (laughs) Let's talk about that. 22nd century skills and the power of future forecasting for learners, how empowering that can be. Can you give us a little bit more on that, please?
1: I think this is the thing that has changed me the most as a parent, Um, Which is that research suggests that science and society have changed enough where when kids are given the right resources and opportunities, only when they get the right resources and opportunities, they have the ability to live really long lives. And scientists, longevity scientists, are now projecting that most young people as an expectation rather than an exception will live to be at least 100. And in fact, the BBC ran an article just a couple of weeks ago saying that young people live to be 141 years old, which is a very long life. I know. And so we are still having this conversation in education about 21st century skills. And we are teaching a population who may be not only living, but working and learning well into the 22nd century. That's right. And so right as moms and educators, it's a both and. It is an impossible ask of us, but in the first 25 years, the first quarter of a possible, maybe probable 100-year life, there is so much that is foundational to the rest of life. So many of the internal assets, so many of the External supports, learning to learn, you know, employability skills, but also relationships and community and connections. Um, And so we have to hold like a now and next mentality of what do young people need to thrive now? And in the context of a possible 100 year life or 140 year life, what is most important? And so when I think about this first for the adults, especially in education, it's about how do we shift our focus from college and what do they need to be college and career ready to what do they need to have long and livable lives that they love? And I'm always thinking about that. What's most important for a long and livable life? So for my son, a couple of years ago, it was tending to his mental health because he was going to carry that for the rest of his life. And that was far more important than than academics. And so we were going to kind of pace and pause ourselves. But what I um, got to do for this book was actually interview some future forecasters. Some have another friend from, uh, from Getting Smart Knowledge Works, their future forecasting team, and some others to talk about how can young people in the same way that we taught innovative thinking and disruptive thinking could we actually teach young people how to be forecasters and how to have some sense of agency and imagination radical imagination around what their possible futures could be and the role that they can play in being active agents inside of creating those futures
0: i love it i mean the the chapter that i'm referencing that i i Act with a hundred year mindset. I love that piece. And then you followed up about being a force for good and seeking awe and wonder, which I'm hearing you say right now, like that. What do do you want for our learners for life? Not just that graduate. Thank you so much for sharing all this. How do you see learning systems using this work um, around the 10 whole life practices? How How do you see a best case scenario for systems that are hearing this now for the first time or maybe Getting a chance to revisit it. What do you suggest?
1: So, there are a couple of ways to, I think, view whole child, whole life. One is I wanted to provide a guidebook that was at once comprehensive and digestible for folks who needed that cross training in social work and mental health and child development and healthcare, the science of learning, to really have as a resource with them to constantly go back to, okay, I need to look up, what do I need to know about relationships? Or what do I need to know about health? Or what could this be? And so one way to use this book is it really is just a resource and service for the individuals on the front lines, caring for kids in any context, um, to have, to constantly be able to go back to, You know, it's both timely and timeless. I was telling you before we got started that I hate the self-promotion of talking about books, but I love talking about this book because there are 50 brilliant, smart scientists and researchers and stories from schools and programs from all around the world and across the U.S. Um, And so it's really shining a light on on what we're already doing that's working and what we need to be paying attention to. So that part about it being a resource and manual for individuals, I think, is key. The second piece is for schools and districts that want to use it. So we're I'm, we're in the middle of writing a, a study guide, although there are questions. You don't, you don't need the study guide. It will be an additional tool. Um, but really you know, I think about the 10 whole life practices. They're not a prescriptive program. They're the art and science of caring for kids. And so it's really about inventorying. Well, where are you with this? And can you look at these 10 practices individually and collectively kind of across a spectrum of helpful to harmful to like, maybe non-existent to very present, right? So like a couple different spectrums and just check yourself to what degree are we meeting basic needs? What, that's one of the whole life practices, you know, or allowing kids to be forces for good. What big P policy, little P policy, big P practice, little P practice do we have that is helping to support that and making that happen? Um, and how do we grow that? And then of course, schools and districts can choose a couple of whole life practices to prioritize in a given year.
0: Hmm. Listeners can pre-order this book now, wherever you get books. It comes out on May thirtieth. Stephanie, where should listeners go to learn more?
1: So if you want to learn more about the book, and we'll be putting some of those charts up as free downloadable tools, you can go to www.wholechildwholelife.com. If you are listening to the podcast before May 30th, you can also go to wholechildwholelife.com backslash pre and you've got all of your choices of big bookstores to choose from where you can order the book, but you can also fill out a form to get the first 50 pages for free to get a head start. Um, we really feel like the team who's supporting this book um, and helping me think about the launch that this is great required reading for anyone who cares about kids this summer to reset and reflect and kind of gather yourself and figure out who you want to be and what you are in the lives of the kids in your life um, this summer before the start of next school year. And of course, is a great read across a school year um, for any individual or group.
0: I will also note it is beautifully illustrated, easy to follow. Charts are so great. I just, I'm, I'm looking forward to all of you out there as you get to read this. Thank you so much for making time to share this with us today.
1: Thanks, Rebecca. really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning.